Our New Testament lesson is found in Romans 6. We're reading from verses 15 through 23. And over the past two weeks, we've discovered the promise of God, the promise of God's grace. It's a promise that rescues us from a broken past, pardoning our sins, making us right with God, giving us a righteousness before Him. And it's a promise that also breaks sin's control and power over us as well. Calvin calls this the double gift, that we have been freed from both sin's guilt and we've also been freed from sin's power. Last week in particular, we noted that we have been now set free if we are baptized into Jesus Christ from sin's tyranny. And so Paul closes in verse 11 by saying, so also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That this is the hard work of the Christian life. It's believing what God says is true and counting that and reckoning ourselves that way appropriating that grace that has been given to us, that we have been set free. This morning we'll see that Paul takes up the same themes from a slightly different angle. And so let's read from Romans 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we ask for Your help. We pray that Your Spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds with understanding and that You lead us in the way of life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the Christian life, when we speak of the term freedom, there are two equal but yet opposite errors. First, some insist that when speaking of freedom, it requires removing any need for obedience. That we're forgiven, we're redeemed, we're justified, we're made right with God. And so, any talk of obedience is really superfluous. It's unnecessary. That the only obedience we need to focus on is the obedience that Jesus offers by going on the cross. But Paul says in verse 15, he asks a question. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? That Paul believes it's fine and it's consistent with grace to talk about obedience. And so this perspective doesn't seem to quite come up to the full measure of God's grace. In fact, it seems to fall short. 
But secondly, others insist that freedom is obtained on the other side of obedience. It is easy to find some Christians who emphasize that we must be obedient in order to then, through our struggle, to gain a certain freedom. But this too comes up short of God's grace. In Paul's day, it was common for some people, especially certain first century Jews, to emphasize that the law was necessary to curb sin. That the law was necessary to restrain sin. And if you remove the law, then you would be setting people free into a life of sin. And that this was unhelpful. But Paul also pushes back against this in verse 14, and he says we're not under law, but we are under grace. And so Paul sees that grace is bigger than both of these errors. He sees that grace is indeed deeper. And what he offers to us is an entirely different perspective when it comes to thinking about freedom. And he does so by making a rather provocative claim. Now, it's important for me to say this and qualify it on the be- at the beginning here because Paul will even say in verse 19 that the metaphor he uses has its limitations. But what Paul says is that we experience God's emancipating power by being enslaved to God. It doesn't seem to make sense at the outset. How do we experience emancipation only to be enslaved once again? And especially this doesn't make sense for us because we live in a world where freedom is defined as being able to do what you want when you want. And so how is being enslaved possibly involved with being free? And God's grace challenges us in two ways to think about freedom. The first is this. We're all slaves to someone or something. None of us is off the hook. That absolutely all of us are slaves. That baby blue theologian, Bob Dylan, really did get it right in the 70s. He said, you got to serve somebody. Thoroughly Pauline. (laughs) Verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. And so Paul sets up two categories that we are either slaves of sin or we're slaves of righteousness. But that we have a master either way. Both are positions of slavery. We are slaves of what we love. We are slaves of what we submit ourselves to is Paul's argument. David Foster Wallace, who was a novelist um, writing in the uh, early part of the last decade, uh, he died uh, a couple of years ago. But in his short career, he wrote several very influential novels, the uh, Infinite Jest being the most successful. But Wallace struggled deeply with the Christian faith. He was not a professing Christian by any recognizable standard, but he did think deeply about life. And he spoke at a graduation ceremony at Kenyon College, and he writes about the ultimate things to these college students. And I want you to consider what he says. He speaks of worship, and what he's talking about is our ultimate obedience, what we give ourselves to. He says there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
And the compelling reason for maybe choosing God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. This is a man who as a non-Christian recognizes that life is lived in slavery. That life is lived in obedience to things that are outside of us. And he says that perhaps you want to consider serving God because it's the only option out there that will not just simply destroy you from within. And so then he proceeds in the speech to go through a litany of all the things that we tend to give ourselves to. The masters that we find compelling or what Paul says makes us slaves to sin. He talks about God's good gifts, things that we then make ultimate things and that begin to destroy us and enslave us to them. He talks about money and how if we decide to serve money and that becomes ultimate, if our meaning and significance is found there and we tap it by having enough resources, then we'll always live in fear and we become a slave to that fear. You could talk about children and how if your ultimate meaning and significance in life is found in your children and their love and affection for you, that you'll die a thousand deaths worrying about whether they will love you as long as you're alive. You could talk further about beauty and our desperate efforts to chisel our bodies into granite and to have them hold up over time. But decay is a real factor as we get older and older. And it will grieve us over and over if beauty and allure is what we crave in life. And then Foster, perhaps in his, in his own candid moment, admits the dangers of intellect, a very smart man. And he says, if you worship intellect and that's what you serve, then you'll become a slave to that and you'll constantly be fearing always that somebody is about to show you up for the phony of who you really are. That that is simply the condition of the human heart. That we are slaves to something. And that we serve. We have to serve something. And that those things then eat us alive when we're slaves to sin. Paul then turns to celebrate in verse 17 though. Because he says that's not the only outcome of life. That yes, everyone begins as a slave to sin, but then God interrupts life. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, formerly in that condition, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And what Paul lays out here is that God has emancipated a people through the death and resurrection of Jesus from the slavery of sin to now be slaves of righteousness. And it is a slavery that we are set free into. But I want you to note that when Paul says that we have been set free here in verse 18, that there's an important grammatical point that he uses the passive voice. I didn't understand the passive voice for many, many years despite my sixth grade grammar teacher. It was not until I went to seminary and had to study Greek and Hebrew that I began to understand English. Uh, but as I understood the passive voice, it was that the subject was not doing the acting, but the subject was being acted on. And that is what is being said here, is that we are not setting ourselves free, that we have been set free by another, that we have been acted upon by God, that there has been a gracious gift, that freedom is not something we procure at the end of a long process, but rather it is a donation that God gives to us. We've been set free, and so Paul can explode into doxology, giving thanks to God. 
that God has made this gift to us, extending Himself to us in Christ, setting us free from the tyranny and control of sin. G.K. Chesterton, in his famous book, Orthodoxy, he says this about slavery to God. The more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. And this is what Paul is pressing us to see. That yes, we are now enslaved to God, but righteousness is not something that constricts us. Righteousness is something that frees us from shame, as he will say in verse 20. And what the goal of sanctification is, is that God would recover our humanity and that good things would now have a boundary and space to run wild. This is the goal. This is where it's headed. But we're all enslaved to something. And this leads to the second place that grace challenges us, though. Because if we are all slaves, then our freedom is relative to our Master, not our personal liberty. That the Bible does not define liberty as being free to do what we want when we want, but the Bible considers freedom to be the goodness of our Master. How good is the one to which we are enslaved? And in our passage, we see that there clearly are two masters. Sin has been personified throughout Romans 6 as something that's reigning and ruling and exercising dominion. You could insert Satan or the devil or the evil one, the Bible's many terms, but is presented to us as a power and a Lord. And then we have another master that's presented, and it's God, or the term righteousness is used. And these two competing powers are leading slaves. One eats them alive, devouring them, and one gives life. He gives a donation, a free gift to those enslaved to his rule. And we find this particularly in the outcome. At the close of the passage, in verses 20 through 23. But it's summarized well in verse 23, a famous verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what is being said is that sin has a wage. Sin pays. And what does sin pay? It pays with death. It gives us shame, and then it gives us death. That it's much like Pharaoh reigning over Israel in Egypt, declaring that Israel needed to make more bricks, but he was going to give less straw. It's a bad taskmaster. He pays poorly. He's out after his own interest, and he's not interested in you and your welfare at all. That is what Paul wants to press us to see. That the wage of sin, what sin pays for its mastery over you, is it steals life from you. Begging us to see that sin is not worth the service. But then we see that there is a gift that the good master gives. It is eternal life or the life of the age to come. That what God's gift to His people is, is to inherit a world 
Paul will fill this out in chapter 8. But we get a preview today in this phrase, eternal life. It means to take up life in God's new world with redeemed bodies and a creation made whole and right, free from the pollution to sin. And that everything will be set free from sin. The influence of sin will finally be removed. It's pollution and scourge absolutely gone. Scrubbed clean. God's world shining and bright. And that's God's gift. That's the Master. And that is what His donation to us is. And so the biggest question becomes, what is the challenge for us who have been emancipated by God? What is the thing that we struggle with? Because we have been set free. There has been a definitive break that takes place when we identify with Jesus, when we are baptized into Him. But sin does still continue to exercise influence over us. It remains, but it doesn't reign. And so what is the challenge for us? And for the liberated, it's essential that we learn to silence the demands of the old Master attuning ourselves to God's grace. That this is the substance and core of the Christian life. It is learning to close our ears to the old master who attempts to pull us back under his influence and lay claim to our lives. And attuning ourselves to what God says is true. That what Paul says in verse 11 is foundational. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 1994, a movie you're undoubtedly familiar with hits the box office. It actually does very poorly in the box office. It was the Shawshank Redemption. Now you can barely turn on cable television and it's on. It's made more money post-movie post theater than it did in the movie theater. It's a great movie about two friends who are imprisoned in Maine. Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins play the lead roles. Morgan Freeman is an African-American man who was enslaved for murder. Forty years, he was in the prison. He's paroled after 40 years, and he begins to work in a supermarket as a bagger. They show his life as a bagger as he gives himself to the daily task of putting the groceries within the bags, and he asks permission to his boss whether he can go to the restroom or not. The boss gets annoyed with him, wonders why exactly he's asking, doesn't quite understand, and then says, yes, sure, go. Morgan Freeman then, in a moment of narration, says, yes, I don't understand why I have to ask. I'm a grown man. I know that I could go to the restroom. But after 40 years of being conditioned in the prison, what had he been conditioned to ask? Whether he could go to the restroom. Everything had to be done in order. Everything had to be done according to what the Master said and when the Master let you do it. And friends, this is the challenge of the Christian life. That we live in that same type of space where yes, we've been paroled. We've been liberated. We have been set free. But the old Master still exercises influence over us because His power was so pervasive. And we're still attuned to His voice and we hear Him and we hear His demands. And we can easily be drawn back into them. But it's not consistent with the freedom that we have now. And the dynamic of the Christian life is saying no and being deaf to the old Master. 
and attuning ourselves to God's grace and all that He says is true of us. We've been emancipated from sin. And so Paul argues that we are not to to enslave ourselves to it. It's just illogical. It's contradictory. It doesn't make sense because of all of God's donation to you. People typically ask, well, how? How does it work? Psalm 77 is a beautiful example of this. If you have a Bible, feel free to turn there or you can simply look in your bulletin. Psalm 77 is the context of celebrating God's exodus of Israel out of Egypt. There are many echoes of the exodus story in Romans 5-8. through The two masters of Pharaoh and God being perhaps the strongest that we see in our passage in Romans 6. One a bad master and one a good master. The people being liberated and taken into freedom. But the psalmist in Psalm 77 is depressed and discouraged. He's asking very hard questions. He's crying out to God. He says, you hold my eyelids open at night. He's despairing. And then we find the turn in verses 10-11. through Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And this is the turn. And the psalm then moves on to meditate on the mighty deeds of God, recalling the exodus and how God led the people through the sea without footprints, guiding them into freedom. And it's crucial for us to grab the spiritual dynamics that are being encouraged to us here. That we are to do the same. That in our depression and despair, in our discouragement, as we hear the old Master, as His voice fills our ears and brings us back under the influence of sin and sinning, as we struggle with sin's presence, that we are to recall God's mighty deeds, what He has done for us, that we have been set free. Not a process. Something that was procured for you. Given to you. That relies upon the accomplishment of another. And that we are to ask God to make that then our reality. Trusting that the same God who accomplished that will bring it to bear and give us grace to appropriate it in our lives. Our struggles with sin are real. They are strong. We hear the old Master But friends, the grace of God is stronger. It's strong enough to heal the guilt of sin, making us right with God. And it has set us free. And now liberates us into a new life where sin is still present, but sin is not a controlling power. Where sin remains, but sin does not reign. And we can receive the commandment of a new and good Master. He can command us to serve righteousness. But do you know why He has the capacity to do so? It's only because He has severed us from the enslavement to sin. He gives us the grace that is necessary to fulfill the command that He gives. He gives us everything so that we can walk in that way and path of obedience. And Paul is here compelling us 
to live in an overwhelming grace of God. It's a flood that fills our lives. A double grace, as Calvin named it. Freeing us from sin's guilt. Freeing us from sin's power. Welcoming us into a new life on the other side of the Red Sea. Free from Pharaoh. Of course, we know for Israel, they were very tempted. That into the desert, many wondered, isn't it better for us back in Egypt? There was stability. There was security. We weren't left out here to die. They were doubting God, and they were doubting God's provision. And friends, those are the same terms that we live under today. The other side of the Red Sea, and we can still hear Pharaoh's voice. It beckons us. It calls us. And it's easy for us to think it is best to return. But God begs you, and He compels you, and He calls you. No, you've been set free. Live as one who's been emancipated, liberated, because of all that's been done for you in Christ. That's God's welcome to us. That now obedience would flow up from the heart, as Paul says. And it flows up from the heart because of what Christ has done for us. And so let Him welcome you into a life of obedience where good things run wild, where they're rampant. And let's ask for His help.